0: but that's all right. Um, If you don't have a Bible, um, just go ahead and put your hand up and one of our ushers will get you one. We want you to have God's Word open in your lap in front of you. And so maybe you forgot it, maybe you don't have one, but uh, we want you to have God's Word um, open as we go through it together. I I have nothing for you. Um, This is all I've got is God's Word. And so we want to turn together um, to God's Word. Um, Thinking about this world um, is such a rat race, isn't it? I mean, you just get on YouTube. I don't, I don't know if your uh, algorithms push the same stuff to you as I get, um, but it's all the same. It, it's, it's get up early, stay up late, hustle, 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 right? Do more. Nothing comes from free. Impress the boss. Um, do what you have to do to, to get ahead. That, that's how our world operates. That's the, the defining principle of our structure. And, uh, and if I can just be brutally honest for a second, my heart resonates with that. That, that grabs me. That makes sense in my heart. Foolishly and sinfully, um, I, I get sucked into that. Most foolishly and most sinfully, far too often, I, I can fall into that trap in the way that I approach the Lord. I want to come to God having done my Bible reading, having spent time in prayer, having loved my neighbor, having given the right amount of of money, having done all the things so that I can come to God and and say, look at me, God, right? I fixed it. I did it. I'm good now. You're welcome, right? Left unchecked, my, my heart tends that way. Talked with enough of you to know I'm not alone in that. Some of you feel that. I think almost all of us do. More than that, as I look at God's word, it seems pretty obvious to me where we learned it from. Um, we, have a, uh, we have a shared father. Um, and, uh, and our first father, Adam, got caught up in the same way of thinking. How do I present myself to God? How do I tidy myself up Get everything in order um, so, that, so that God will look on me in, in favor. Um, it's one of those things that's just ingrained in, in who we are. It's part, of, it's part of what it means to be human in this fallen, sinful world. And yet, God, in His grace, has, has a radically different plan. So, um, look with me, Genesis chapter 3. Um, we're going to look at verses 20 to 24. Um, as we kind of just finish off chapter 3. Just for context, um, we're we're coming in in the the middle of a story here. We're coming in the middle of um, this story of Adam and Eve in the garden, and and this is immediately following what we call the curse. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. They they disobeyed God. That's that's the fall, eating of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree from which they were commanded not to eat. And then comes the curse. God lays out for them. Here's the fallout. This is what this world is going to look like. You, you broke it. You brought something into this world that was not part of this original, good, beautiful creation. And there's, there's ramifications of that. This world's going to begin to fall apart. You brought brokenness in with sin. And so God is laying out these catastrophic effects, the ultimate consequence of which uh, is death. Absolutely, including physical death, but also um, this idea of spiritual death, this separation from God, this breaking of their relationship with Him, and and it's in the wake of that announcement of the curse that we find this last little tidbit of the narrative, and uh, Adam and Eve being sent out of the garden. Um, as I kind of looked at how have other people broken this up, a lot of people just kind of add this on um, to the section on the curse. Um, I think there's enough here. We need to pause. We need to dig down here a little bit, give this a little more careful thought. So let me read this for us. Genesis chapter three, starting in verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, you pray with me? Father, we are a broken people. We are sinful by nature and by choice. The, the world has these hooks in us and we feel it. God, we need you. Lord, would you open our eyes this morning? Would you soften our hearts? God, that we might be corrected by your word. Lord, we are so easily self-deceived. We are so easily um, happily in sin and not even realizing that our our thinking, our way of viewing the world is completely out of step with, with who you are and who you've called us to be. So God, correct us in your grace this morning. Lord, I pray that you would encourage those who are, weak, those who are burdened, those who are sorrowful, Lord, in your mercy, I pray you would crush those who are proud, Lord, that you would bring all of us to the foot of the cross to see your mercy and your grace, Lord, that we would take refuge in you and see you this morning, your name be lifted high, Um, Lord, may you be at work in your church in the preaching of your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we come into this last little section, um, the first thing we see, verse 20, um, I think it's Adam's faith. It's Adam's faith. It's not obvious right away, um, but but once you see it, I I think you'll agree it, it stands out. Adam named his wife Eve, and that's a statement of Adam's faith. It's a big deal. Back to chapter 2, verse 23, um, this, this starts out. He declared that she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So Adam Adam names the, 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 the sex, the gender is, is woman, but up to this point, Eve doesn't actually have her own name, which maybe is okay when you're the only Two people in the world, you can get by with all kinds of pet names and and be cutesy and the kids don't get grossed out. Um, It's all right, Um, but but she doesn't have a name. Here, Adam is finally giving her a name, and he he names her Eve. Eve means life or living. Moses tells us um, why Adam gave her that name. Uh, He named her life because she is the mother of all living. God gave the woman this amazing, miraculous, precious gift, the ability to, to give birth, to, to create life. All the talk these days, what is a man? What is a woman? How do you define a woman? There's a good start. The ability to give birth is right at the heart of that. Um, this reproductive system, it's amazing. It's amazing. And it's actually confirmed, again, if you, if you look at verse 16, this is the curse of sin that, that will plague the woman, and, and it will plague her right at the core of who she is, right at the core of God's blessings to her. There will be pain and childbearing and struggle in marriage. And that's, that's precisely because marriage and motherhood are, are part of God's design, part of what God says, this is, this is what it means to be a woman. I want to tread lightly here, um, because this is the curse, right? There's blessing and curse mixed in together. There's pain of sin here. There's damage here, and we feel it. We Come to this topic, this is painful for many, even in this room. There are many who would long to be married, and they're not. There are those who would long to be mothers, and they're not. Precisely because marriage and motherhood are this this precious, wonderful blessing from God, that's exactly why it's so incredibly painful. The reality is, that's exactly what verse 16 is talking about. Because of sin in this world, marriage and motherhood are fraught with with trial and and pain and suffering. It's just mixed in. For some, that means that they will be married. And they will have children, but guess what? That's not easy. There's pain in that. There's suffering and and loss down that path. There's trial and hardship. There are others for whom that means they're going to miss out on one or maybe both of those blessings. Because of sin in this world, there are those who who have children but no husband. There are those who have a husband and for any number of reasons are, are not able to have children. And there are those who have neither. And sometimes, sometimes that's because of our specific sin. You can trace that back to some sinful decisions that you've made. But most often, I think this is important to keep in view, most often, it's just the curse of sin. This is just the reality of living in a broken world. It's it's the reality of sin in general that has broken this world in in general ways, and we all feel that pain in different ways. Our world simply is not as it should be, and so that doesn't make anyone less of a woman because they don't have those things. That just means this world is broken, and that's exactly the backdrop that, that makes verse 20 stand out so starkly. It goes beyond that. Actually, the backdrop is even darker than that. Look at verse 19. The the last the, the, the last verse, just preceding verse 20. The Lord says to Adam, By the sweat of your face you shall be bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. See the contrast here? <laughs> there is going to be suffering in childbearing, there's going to be suffering in marriage, and guess what? You're going to die. And then Adam says, I'm going to call her life. She's the mother of all living. What a contrast, right? Like immediately following the curse, Adam completely contradicts it. He makes this, this statement. It's, it's a statement of faith. This, this is life right here in spite of all of this curse. Um, it's so stark. It's such a contrast that some commentators, particularly some early Jewish commentators, um, suggest that maybe it's sarcasm, and and they work real hard to try to play that out. The the the, uh, the name Eve is pronounced Hava, which is similar um, to the the um, Aramaic word Hua, uh, which is serpent. And this, like maybe it's like this backhanded because you deceived me. I'm going to give you a name that that sounds like serpent. Um, but this isn't written in Aramaic. It's all in Hebrew. And and this the Hebrew word for serpent is nowhere near the Hebrew word Hava. Um, There's a much better explanation for this amazing flip. It's an act of faith. Look back again um, to the beginning of this section called the, the curse, verse 15. The Lord said this to the serpent. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And he, this offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel." God is making this promise. There's a rescuer coming. One who will come, this this offspring of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent, who's going to undo the damage that he has done, that even though sin would bring pain and suffering and death, that there would come one who would break the curse, who would bring life into this world of death. Who would restore goodness. And and Adam's naming his wife Eve as the the mother of all living, the source of all life. um, It's a statement of faith. He's he's looking at the curse of sin, this, this overwhelming darkness. And he's choosing to pierce through that and look all the way back to verse 15 and say, there's hope yet. God has made a promise here. And on one hand, I mean, it's so simple, isn't it? I mean, God said it. I believe it. Of course. Of course. It's that easy, right? Well, how's that in your life? Is it that easy? Just looking at the, the, the content of, of the previous chapter, there, there's at least seven statements of curse. Seven negative sentences and one of promise. The statement of curse is pretty clear and pretty pointed. It's pretty easily understood. We all kind of nod our heads as we hear pain and childbearing. Um, check. Uh, struggle in marriage. Yep. Thorns and thistles. Been there. Sweat and toil. Yeah. Death. It's everywhere. We feel that. It, it's an overwhelming list. It's, it's pretty hard to hear that list and think of anything else. This world is broken. And there's just one promise There's just one little statement of hope, and and even that is kind of tucked in there quietly. It's not obvious. It's not immediately, easily understood, but it's, it's there if you're looking. It's there for those who have eyes to see it. Isn't that so often the way it is with God's promises? The pain of this world, the, the suffering of this life, it's so obvious. It comes in like a cloud. It socks in. It surrounds everything. We see it. We feel it. Our sin and the, the consequences of that sin is like the, this billboard on the side of the road. You're driving to Calgary at night, and there's those big electronic billboards, and they just blind you, and you can't see anything else. You know how close you are to the guy in front of you anymore because you have this flashing. That's it. That's like the curse is here. Right? God's promises, they're just they're just in black and white. Just simply written on a page. They're there. But they're so easily overlooked. They're so easily forgotten. Um, we never have to to choose to intentionally remember the pain of sin. We never have to to work to to see the consequence of, of sin in this world the toil of work, the fear of death. These things are are not hard for us to believe. The promises of God are clearly stated. They They aren't hidden. They're just there. How often do we let them just get drowned out by the noise of this world? How often do we allow ourselves to get overwhelmed by the brokenness and simply just forget that God's in the middle of this? God is at work, that God has made some promises that, that he will fulfill. Adam, having just heard the, the consequences of the curse and sin, makes this intentional choice to see and to believe God's promise. He doesn't ignore the pain of sin, right? He's, he's, not, he's not just pretending it doesn't exist, but he trusts the Lord, and, and by faith he fixes his eyes on that promise. He doesn't even know the fullness of it. He doesn't understand how this is going to play out over the generations. He has no idea what God is going to do to fulfill that promise. How could he? But it's God's promise nonetheless. What are the promises of the Lord that that you're overlooking, that you've let be just drowned out by the pressure of of the toil and this trial and the struggle of this world? What a great example we have here in Adam to look carefully, search the scriptures, find the promises of God and, and hang on to those, trust those. Even if we don't understand, God, I don't know how on earth you're going to work all things for the good of those who love you or are called according to your purposes. I'm looking at this and I don't know what good there is in it, but God, I trust you. That's Adam's faith. We'll see how that plays out as we dig further through this passage. Following Adam's faith, what we see is the Lord's grace. The Lord's grace. Verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Again, kind of benign. Doesn't look like A whole lot, not really a big deal. Um, So he gave them new clothes. Now this is a huge statement, huge statement. Comes at such a a significant moment here. There's a progression leading up to this moment. Um, The first statement happens um, back in in Genesis 2, verse 25. 2, verse 25. And the man... And his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. In the Garden of Eden, before sin entered the world, God put Adam in the garden. He he created Eve as this perfect helper fit for him. Uh, And and then they were both together. They're naked and not ashamed. It's perfect. It's beautiful. It speaks of their, their relationship with one another, their relationship before the Lord. There's no shame. They're uncovered. Then comes chapter 3, verse 6. Eve took of the fruit of the tree and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her. And the very next verse, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Immediately following the entrance of sin comes the entrance of shame. They're exposed. They feel naked. They feel guilt, shame before each other, before the Lord. And so they, they scramble around. What would you do all of a sudden finding yourself at church with no clothes on? That's the bad dream we've all had, right? i got to cobble something together. i got to cover myself. And so they, they get some, some fig leaves. And they make loincloths. Big trees have pretty good sized leaves, but the the best they can do is a a loincloth. Verse 10 then shows how well this really works because the the Lord comes into the garden, calls out to, to Adam, where are you? Genesis 3 verse 10. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself., well, Adam, you just, you just made the loincloth, Yeah, and how well's that work?" And I still feel pretty naked, right? He f- still feels exposed. It's, it's shame and the guilt of sin. It's, it's the effect of a, of a guilty conscience. And so Adam and Eve try to try to cover themselves, and, and they can't do it, not effectively. And it's so significant that That here, after the curse, after Adam makes this statement of of faith and and trust in the Lord to to rescue them, to, to, to save them from the consequences of sin, that God then takes it upon himself to clothe them. The Lord's clothing for them is a significant upgrade, right? Adam and Eve made loincloths out of leaves. God made for them Garments. Uh, the word garment there is uh, speaks of a tunic, a, a kind of short or long sleeved shirt that would go right down to the knees, maybe even right to the ankles. Much more significant covering than than a loincloth. Uh, and this garment, it's not made from leaves, but out of skin. Again, imagine this this loincloth made of fig leaves. Um, it's a little delicate. It's a little. A little frail. I don't know about you. Um, like I'm not going grocery shopping in loincloth made out of fig leaves. Not happening. But God makes them a tunic out of skin, out of leather. That's significant. Maybe not. Maybe not fashionable today. Um, but covers well. It's durable. It's trustworthy. It is actually going to cover them. It's also significant. That in order to get a a tunic made of skin, in, in order to cover them properly, something had to die. This, we've got to get this. This is shocking, right? This is the first death in the created world. Adam has never witnessed anything like this a living creature becoming not living. It would have been shocking. I was growing up, we, we ate a lot of wild game. Um, my brother and my father and I would would every year take at least one, if not two deer. Um, and, and it's pretty easy to to look through your scope at a deer at, a, at 150, 200 yards away and just, and it falls. And you're done. And it's clean and neat and, and tidy. But then you have to walk up to that deer and you rarely would find that it was completely dead by the time you got there. At at very least, it's still twitching and jolting because of nerves. And it's a much more difficult thing. It's a much more personal thing to take out your knife and cut its throat and watch its blood pour out onto the snow at your feet. Then you can see the look in its eyes. Then you can feel with your hands the resistance of its flesh against your blade, and you feel the different consistencies as you cut. Some of you are feeling really uncomfortable. You should. It was always done humanely. It was done with respect. It was done with the purpose of putting food on the table. I never once felt guilty about it, but it was a serious thing. It's a somber thing to to take a life. Here, the Lord is taking a life in front of Adam and Eve to cover them. He's saying it's not enough. It's not enough that you just pluck a couple of leaves off a tree that are going to grow back next season. No, no. Sin is serious. There's a cost to this covering, it doesn't come for free. A life has to be taken, blood needs to be spilt. People often wonder when we get to Cain and Abel next week. Maybe I'm kind of spoiling the story here, but why is it? Why is it that the sacrifice of vegetation doesn't cut it, um, and and, and Abel's sacrifice of a a lamb is acceptable? This is the first instance of the biblical principle. Hebrews 9.22 spells it out clearly. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins the blood sacrifice mattered. The Lord clothed them with tunics of skin. There's at least three principles that I think we can take from this, probably more, but at least three. Firstly, Adam and Eve could not do it themselves. They couldn't clothe themselves, and neither can you. We are sinners by, by nature and by choice. We're sinners like I said at the outset, I'm so prone to try to do these things, to try to make up for my sin, right? Try to prove myself to God. You feel it. I'm so tempted to sit down in the morning to, to read the word, and instead of seeking to, to abide in Christ and commune with the Lord in it, I, I'm seeking to check a box and, and elevate my status as a Bible reader before God. If I could just go to church more and give more and share the gospel more and, and read the Bible and fast and pray and study and, and more, 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 more. And if I can not go to any R-rated movies or, or not swear, and if I can do, 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 and don't, 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 then, then I'll be able to kind of fix this sin situation that I'm dealing with. Then I would make myself acceptable before God. I could I could cobble together some pretty good fig leaves and that's all it amounts to fig leaf one cloths it doesn't work you can't cover your own sin Isaiah 64 6 we've all become like one who is unclean listen to this all of our righteous deeds our best days are like a polluted garment We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind carry us away. My best deeds are like a polluted garment, and we won't go into the Hebrew there because it's disgusting. They're filthy. They're repugnant. We've seen the toddlers do it, right? You dump a whole bowl of chocolate pudding out onto the ground, and what do they do? The best intentions... They get down on their hands and knees and they start to wipe it up. I'll, I'll help. I'll make this better. And they're just grinding it into the carpet and smearing it all the way across the floor. Right? It's a disaster. Stop helping. That's us. That's us with our sin. I'll make it better and I'm just smearing it everywhere. And even my good deeds, I'm, I'm holding up this, this covered rag and saying, I, here God, is this better? Even their best intentions, that's not the point. Fig leaves don't work. We don't have the ability to clean ourselves up. But God does. God does. You can't cover your sin, but God can. The Lord killing an animal to to cover Adam and Eve with its skin. This isn't just physical or practical, as somewhat suggests. suggest. No, he's just preparing them for the outside world. No, there's, there's significance here in this action. God is saying, I will cover your sin. It will require a sacrifice. There will be a cost. There will be death involved. But I will cover your shame and your guilt. God continues to make that same promise, actually to, to build on that promise through Scripture. Instructing the Israelites to, to kill a lamb on the day of Pentecost and to smear its blood on the doorposts and to hide themselves in the house with the blood smeared. He's saying there's a sacrifice, there's a covering, something has died in your place, hide there. Instituting the sacrificial system. The high priest entering into the temple once a year, sacrificing a bull and a goat, sprinkling its blood on the altar, sprinkling the blood between the cherubim where the presence of the Lord would dwell and the law inside the Ark of the Covenant. The Lord's saying, when I look down from my place or my dwelling above the Ark of the Covenant, I will no longer see the law. I will see the blood that was shed In your place. God is saying, I will cover your sin. It was never about Israel cleansing themselves. Don't get the wrong idea. The old covenant was not based on works. They weren't having their sins forgiven. Hebrews is very clear. The blood of bulls and goats never took care of sin. It was God reminding them of his promise. Do this as an act of faith that I will cover you. That there is a sacrifice coming. And so they are saved by faith, looking forward to the ultimate death of the Lamb of God. The sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. Jesus is the the ultimate cover for shame because Jesus was put to the ultimate shame. He's beaten. He's mocked he spit on, he slapped, he stripped naked and bare. Uncovered, he's hung and and lifted up high for everyone to, to jeer at him. And there he suffered and died like a criminal. Of course, those are just physical realities physical realities that are meant to to draw our attention to the infinitely greater spiritual reality of what is happening on that cross. There's this great exchange. Jesus took our guilt, our shame upon himself, not just before man, but before God. He took them as if they were his own. And he died in our place. Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds were healed. He took our filthy, polluted garments. He took our mess on himself. But there's more to that exchange. There's two sides to it. He took our sin... But then just like the Lord covered Adam and Eve, covered their shame with the skin of an animal, our sin, our guilt, and our shame is covered by the righteousness of Christ. Galatians 3, 7 says, uh, 27 says it this way, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Baptism is the symbol of faith, of having trusted in Jesus. You have put on Christ. You have a new covering, new clothes. We're clothed by him. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1.30. Because of him, that's God the Father, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who, Jesus, became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We're covered by Jesus. Jesus became our righteousness. He became our sanctification. Sanctification means to be, to be made holy. His perfect, spotless, sinless righteousness is our covering. He took our sin as his own. He gave his righteousness to us. Second Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake... He, that's God, made him, that's Jesus. God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The holy, perfect Jesus who knew no sin became sin in our place so that we who were sin might become, think about this, the righteousness of God. For all those who are in Christ, you stand before God, wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus. This is the, the imagery, um, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Give me a second. After this, I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all the tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes. Newsflash nobody cares what color you wear in heaven. It's not about white robes. It's about the, this is a picture of the, the righteousness of Christ that covers them. They stand before the Lord holy, it's not their holiness. It's not what they earned. It's not because they got up earlier and read more scripture and and had callous knees and worked harder and served in church more. No, it's the righteousness of Christ. I mean, go ahead and try to add to it. What are you going to add to the righteousness of God? You're not judged based on your own righteousness. Those who are in Christ are judged based on the righteousness of Christ, what what Martin Luther called an, an alien righteousness. A righteousness that's from outside of us, not from inside of us. Romans 3, 21, 22 speaks of this very thing. Now, the righteousness of God has been manifest, has been made, seen apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ For all who believe, it's not about a righteousness from the law. It's not about a righteousness by by doing all of the right things. Not a righteousness that that you earn through your obedience, but rather a righteousness, the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of God, which comes as a gift through faith to all who believe. This is amazing, it's astounding. And it's so simple. In fact, it's so simple that it's difficult. It's so simple that it's hard. Because we're so prideful. We are so driven in our rat race world. That's nice, God, but let me let me get some of that. Let me earn some of that. I don't take no charity. I'm gonna. I I want to contribute. We're like Naaman. Remember Naaman. 2 Kings chapter 5. Name is this great, mighty commander in the Syrian army. Powerful army. High up dude. He's a man of valor and honor. And he has leprosy. Leprosy is a disease of shame. As it eats away at your flesh and your your nose becomes a hole in your face. It's disfiguring. It's ugly. And, And not only that, there's this social shame to it. Um, When you were kids, you guys talk about like head lice. It was like, ew, he's got lice. Like it was gross. How'd you get that? Nobody wants to be near you. And so as you walk through the streets, you have to call out, unclean, unclean. And everybody kind of parts out. the Don't get too close to that guy. It's, It's shameful. Leprosy is this slow and painful, shameful death sentence even the most powerful commander in the Syrian army, you don't think he tried every doctor and every crazy cockamamie idea they could come up with to heal it? Nothing, nothing worked. Out of desperation, proud Naaman of Syria finally finds himself at the door of Elisha the prophet. He goes to the the neighboring nation. He leaves behind his gods that have won him all these battles and he goes to try this other god, He brought with him great wealth. Maybe I can pay for my healing. He brought with him a letter from the, from the king of Syria demanding his healing. Maybe I can wield some authority here. He's ready to perform. Give me any task and I'll do it. Elisha doesn't take the money. Doesn't even look at the letter. Didn't command some great Feat of strength or valor. In fact, Elisha doesn't even come to the door. He sends his servant. He just kind of writing away and he just looks at like, yeah, yeah, tell him, tell him to go wash in the Jordan River. Naman What? Like you'd think he'd be thrilled, right? That's it? I just the river here, I just go and wash and it's it's done. This is great. No, no. Naaman is far too much like us. He's furious, he's enraged. I mean, what, do you think I've never washed myself before? You think the river in, in, in Israel is any better than the rivers in Syria? It can't be so simple. Thankfully, one of his humble servants talks him down. What harm is there? Just go do it. Just try. All right? What do you got to lose? And so, remarkably, Naaman is humbled. He trusts the Lord. And so he goes down to the river and he, and he dunks himself in seven times as Elisha had instructed. And he comes up clean. He comes up healed. Skin restored, it says, like the skin of a little child. Naaman wanted to work for it. right? He wanted to struggle and strive and the Lord wanted Naaman to trust him. To have humility and faith. In our pride, we'd rather work than give up. We'd rather earn it than receive it. And if we can earn it, and if we can get some, some kind of purchase on this, even if it's just a little bit, um, then it's mine. Then I can say, look what I did. Yeah, God helped a whole bunch, but look what I accomplished. It was me. God says, Nobody boasts. Nobody boasts but in the cross of Jesus Christ. You can't. It was your works, your wisdom that got you into this mess in the first place. You want to be covered, clothed, and restored. You need to stop working. Stop striving and struggling. Trust. Give up and Trust the Lord. Romans 4 5. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Don't work. Believe in him, listen, who justifies the ungodly. Ouch. Am I willing to put myself in that category? He doesn't justify those who clean themselves up Mostly, He doesn't justify the, the pretty good human beings. He justifies the ungodly, the worst of all sinners. No matter how hard you work, you cannot cover your shame, but God can. If you would just stop working and trust. He justifies the ungodly. You can't. God can And God's covering is enough. It's enough. He didn't make Adam and Eve a new fig leaf loincloth and send them out and say, be careful, don't snag that on the way out. He didn't give them this shoddy, frail half covering. He covered them completely. If our justification, if the removal of our guilt and our shame before God Rests in anything of our own doing, then we should be fearful. (laughs) We would be right to be constantly nervous about our justification. If there is 0.01% left up to me, I'm going to mess that up. We should be terrified. Actually, we should just give up in despair. If it was up to me to earn or keep my salvation, it's game over. I'm done, be honest with you. Not that long ago, I used to chuckle at those who would make statements like that. I'd never do it out loud, like don't be crazy, but in my heart, I'm thinking, really though? I mean, because usually the guy saying it is, you know, some preacher that I look up to, some great and godly man. I used to not take that seriously. I used to think, you know, he's making, I see the point he's making, he's kind of like a hyperbole, he's exaggerating for the point of of making the the point. And as I grow to understand the deadly seriousness of sin and the depth of corruption that's in my own heart, tell you what, I say that now with absolute dead seriousness. If I had any ability to lose my salvation, I would have done it again today. But there was nothing I could do to get it. And praise the Lord, there's nothing I need to do to keep it. God's covering is enough, it's perfect, it's complete. That's the whole point of this, of this covering that it covers my sin, that it makes up for my lack. Not, not 80% of it, not 90% of it, not 99.999% of it, all of it. Psalm 103:12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us, completely. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's done, it's over, it's it's dealt with. If you are covered in Christ by faith then your sin is covered, past, present, future, it's covered. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that phrase, since we have been justified. That's a past tense and a future tense rammed together. We have been justified. I say it's future tense because God's ultimate judgment is still coming. right? None of us has stood before the Lord. None of us are in glory now, and yet my justification has happened. We, those who by grace through faith are in Christ, we have been justified. It's done. God's final verdict has already come out. It's like a document leaked out from the the most supreme of all supreme courts. But the one who leaked it was the judge. And it's signed by his blood. And it's published online for the world to see. Justified. The verdict, not guilty. Court date pending. Verdict, not guilty. We have been justified. (laughs) When Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished, he meant it. He meant it. He died and actually justified his own. We can't cover ourselves, but God can. And his covering is enough. And just stop the striving and the struggling to earn it. Stop working as if you could add to it. Stop fearing that maybe you'll make a wrong step and lose it. He has done what you never could do. Trust him. Maybe there's this question about what what about living in holiness and what about growing him? Tell you what, if you trust him, that'll come. That happens out of joyful gratitude, not out of dutiful trying to earn from the Lord. Trust his promises, believe in him, trust in him, rest in him. So let's grab those two pieces. Adam's faith, looking at the, the promises of God in the midst of the darkness and our need to, to trust in him and this, this covering that he offers in Christ. Um, we we'll go back to Genesis 3, and we see this last section is a little bit surprising. It's judgment with hope. Judgment with hope. Picking up verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out in his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In a sense, the the lying promise of the serpent came true, right? He told Eve, oh, if you eat of the fruit of the tree, you'll be like God. And in some extent they were, the Lord says, um, they have become like us in knowing good and evil. Unfortunately, that's not a good thing for us to know. It had no good effect. Maybe a bit of irony from the Lord here. And now that, now that Adam and Eve have what they want, and then the Lord says, now lest, they, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And then the Lord actually cuts himself off. Um, he doesn't actually say. He acts. He simply does it. He casts them out of the garden. Some have said there's, there's grace in this act from God. He's, he's protecting them from, from living continually under this broken world. I, I, I see the, the validity to that. I see the logic to that. But, but this is judgment. It is the consequence of their sin. Sin would bring death. And so they they no longer have access to the tree of life. But of course, this this is more than just physical death. And and that becomes so clear as you work through this passage, wrapped up in the the meaning of the tree of life in the middle of the Garden of Eden. This this is huge, rich with, with meaning beyond the physical The Garden of Eden is the place where God dwells. It's his his presence there. The tree of life is is not just physical life, but it's fullness of life. It's life with him. They're being sent out of his presence, out from the Garden of Eden, out into the curse. Right? Back out to the the ground from which he was taken. Verse 24 uses a much stronger word than God drove them out. Apparently, there is um, an entrance to the garden on the east side, and there the Lord put a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way. Cherubim, if you've read through some of those strange prophetic books, um, they're weird things. Um, They're a mix of animal and human, often seen in the presence of the Lord, terrifying creatures. There's no clear parallel elsewhere in Scripture of the the flaming sword necessarily, but, but both fire and the sword are often and regularly used as symbolic of God's wrath, His judgment. That seems obviously to be the implication here. So the Lord has closed the way back into His presence. He's taken them out of the garden and He's shut the door. This is necessary judgment. Because of their sin, Adam and Eve can no longer be in the presence of the Lord, not in the same way. Partaking of of the life of God and life with God is, is, is no longer possible for them. This is the world we live in. We continue to exist outside the garden. It's a world of judgment, a world that is defined by the curse. Again, we have pain and childbearing. We have strife in marriage. We have sweat and toil and frustration in work. And ultimately, we have destruction and decay and death. But this judgment, as I said, is a judgment mixed with hope. With hope. And then the hope, I admit, is not embedded in the passage here, it's not clear in, in these verses 22 to 24. What we see here is is judgment is the terrible consequence for sin. The hope comes as we read the rest of the Bible. Because this is set up. This this language here from this passage is continually picked up later on, is continually drawn back. The Garden of Eden, where the presence of the Lord was, and the the tree of, of life there, it had its entrance To the east and it's blocked by a cherubim. Just one strain we can follow these these words a little bit. God instructed Israel to build a tabernacle. Later a temple. The entrance was always to face the east. Why? The inside is decorated with colorful embroidery of palm trees and pomegranates and fruit. Why? Why? It's a garden. It's the Garden of Eden. It's the the presence of the Lord here in the tabernacle, in the temple. One of the central pieces of furniture there is a golden lampstand with seven branches. It's a tree holding light. It's the tree of life. It represents the, the presence of the Lord. Under the threat of death, No one was to enter into the tabernacle, into the temple, only the priest and only with with sacrifice of blood covering him. And what guards the entrance to the Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence dwells? A veil. As thick as a man's hand and embroidered on the veil are cherubim. Forever keeping sinful man from entering into the presence of the Lord. God cast us, because of our sin, out of his presence, and he dwelt there then, in the tabernacle, in the temple, and we were cut off. But God had promised. God had promised to to crush the head of the serpent, to undo the brokenness of sin, to reverse the effects of the curse. You know where this is going. The moment, the moment of Jesus' death on the cross. That covering for us that had been promised so long, it's made complete. Matthew 27, 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. That's the, the second of his death right there. The next words, and behold, the curtain And the temple is torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks split. The curtain, thick as a man's hand, that separated God from man, sinful man from holy God, is torn in two. God is declaring through Christ the way is open. The way is open because of his work. The The curse is reversed. The entrance into the presence of God, the the life of God is is restored. It's restored in Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. It's restored for all those who are in Christ, who are covered by His righteousness. All those by, by grace through faith have trusted in Him who believe in his promises, those who are trusting, clothed in his righteousness, will be welcomed again into his presence. And one day, when Jesus returns, they will be raised from the dead. They will be given new, eternal bodies, clothed in white, fully and forever, freed from the curse of sin and welcomed personally into the very presence of God. Come again to the communion table. Josh, why don't you come and prepare to lead us. It's an opportunity again. In spite of of the chaos and the noise of the curse around us, as those dark clouds continue to hover, we don't deny it. I see it, I feel it. I wept with my neighbor yesterday whose daughter died. We've been praying for them, sharing the gospel with them, hoping for more time, and she's gone. It hurts. This world is broken. So we come to communion, not to pretend like it's all okay, but to fix our eyes on the promises of God to remember once again the cross of Christ. And we declare by our our partaking together that we are, that we're trusting in those promises, that we're resting in the the covering of the righteousness of Christ. His body broken for us, his blood poured out for us. is saying, I give up. I can't cover myself. God, I need you to do it. And it's not a one and done, is it? It is in our justification and yet we continue need to remind ourselves to give up trust the Lord we're resting in the covering of his righteousness and that through him and him alone we are saved and we're, we're waiting Paul says we're, we're declaring his return waiting for that day when we shall fully and completely be in the presence of our Lord and God We're going to sing together as the elders.